Six Walks is a series of audio walking tours, commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, and released in the lead-up to the forthcoming exhibition and research project Who's Afraid of Public Space, opening in the summer of 2021 into 2022. Continuing ACCA's series of big-picture exhibitions, Who's Afraid of Public Space explores the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life itself, engaging with contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes public culture and to ask, and who might it be for? Six Walks continues a rich history of artists, writers and thinkers engaging with, describing and depicting the various pleasures of walking. This program began as an invitation to six Melbourne-based writers to develop a narrative response to an area of the city that held a particular interest to them, either personally or professionally, socially or culturally. The six walks were largely written while under strict COVID-related lockdowns, at a time when walking was one of the few freedoms afforded to those of us in Melbourne. The series release has been timed to coincide with the easing of these restrictions, allowing for expanded horizons and encouraging a renewed interest in our surrounding natural and urban environments and to the narratives, knowledge and histories latent within them. Across six walks, writers Idil Ali, Tima Ball, Tony Birch, Sophie Cunningham, Eleanor Jackson and Christos Shokas take us from the Birrarung to Royal Park, from regal cinemas to abandoned military defence force bases, tracing desire lines as much as designated paths. They tackle concerns from public housing to motherhood, colonisation, migration, gentrification, restoration, surveillance, resilience, leisure and pleasure. In following their words, walking becomes a form not only of art and literature, but of thinking, observing, research, remembering, poetry, protest, mapping and making. What is revealed is a complex portrait of Melbourne as a city that is constructed from diverse, diverging and overlapping cultural, social, political, economic and historical paths. In this episode of Six Walks, Storyteller Idil Ali guides you through an extended period of over 10 years of gentrification at the Carlton Housing Estate. Based on her personal perspective, having grown up and witnessed the effect of this gentrification on both herself and her community, Idil attempts to dig up memories buried beneath an updated infrastructure. Idil Ali is a proud Somali woman raised by the East African community in the Carlton Flats. A settler on unceded Wurundjeri land, Idil embeds her belief in freedom, sovereignty and resistance into her work as a writer, performer, youth practitioner and community organiser. Six Walks has been conceived to be ideally listened to in situ, with headphones on a personal mobile device. Maps, directions and access notes are included with each walk to assist with orientation. ACCA reminds participants to be aware of their surroundings and to adhere to road safety guidelines at all times. Please note that when undertaking a walk, participants must assume personal responsibility for any liability, injury, loss or damage in any way connected with their experience of six walks. Recorded in podcast format, six walks can also be listened to from anywhere and at any time. Text versions of each walk are also available for download. Before we begin our journey, I'd like to acknowledge that we will be walking on stolen Wurundjeri land. 
I'd like to pay respects to Wurundjeri elders past, present and all the young elders emerging. I recognise their continued projection of land, culture, language and people from ongoing colonisation. Sovereignty has never been ceded and treaties have not been signed. Having been raised in a community of black people who have been housed by the government on land where black people were forcibly removed, historically through missionaries and in current times through gentrification, I recognise my privilege in being a settler and extend my solidarity. This always has been and will always be Wurundjeri land. I'm Edil Ali. I'm a youth practitioner, writer, performer, moderator, and today I'll be taking you through time and space. I'll be sharing memories buried underneath the new Carlton. I can't fully do justice to the complexity of our community's history, but I'll give you my perspective whilst maintaining community's privacy and the things that are simply just for us. Shout out to all my OG Carlton people listening. I just want to warn y'all, I didn't realize how hard it would be talking about all the changes until I started to put this together. This might feel heavy. We'll begin our journey at 510 Lycon Street, Carlton. 510 is the center of Carlton as I know it. The building with the most families and kids. The best building to go knick-knocking and play the lift game. The lift game was pioneered by me and my friends as kids. Years later, I've been caught on the same floor for over five minutes with the sound of footsteps running away and muffled laughter around the corner. The lift game has a code of ethics. You don't hold up a full crowded lift, ones with babies in them. If anyone's holding something that looks heavy, elderly folk or Anyone that holding the lift might be upsetting rather than just annoying. Looking at three windows across from the lift, you can see who's inside in the reflection to decide if that's the lift you're going to hold up. If you're a more seasoned group, you can plant somebody pretending they're waiting for their parent before catching the lift and they can give signals to the rest of the group. Full bladder or not, I make an ideal victim of the game and I couldn't help but find it hilarious that I was deemed a grown up enough not to know what the lift game is. The same way you can't knick-knock too late unless it's summer, when you know everyone would still be up, there were rules. It's hectic to think about in retrospect. Would knick-knock on a drug dealer's house knowing he would chase us and only stopped once we noticed his girlfriend was pregnant and they had a baby on the way? That was my favourite thing about growing up in 510. It was chaotic fun with some solid morals. 510 with its 12 floors, 3 sides and 4 units on each side, except for mezzanine that only had 2 sides, was my first home on this continent. We'll be on the other side of 510 later on our journey. We'll make our way towards the intersection of Lycon Street and Elgin, moving in the direction of the city. On your left is 480. Department of Housing's office is under that building, and so is the community space most of us went to Duxie. I won't say much about Islamic class, except that it never without fail happened three times a week, except in Ramadan, and that the experiences bonded us for life. Wait, actually one thing. I don't know if people remember when we used to use Bluetooth to send each other songs, but I used to get all the latest T-Pain and A contracts in Duxie. And I'm not going to name names, but there was one person in particular who used to hook us all up. And to the non-Muslims listening, for context, Duxie is the absolute last place you should be getting smacked that Bluetooth to you from your friend. At the intersection, cross the street towards Shell's Calls Express. On the right of you is the intersection cafe. The Intersection Cafe has to be one of the most consistent parts of Carlton. I have no doubt the new owners have tried to change it, but rumour has it that the Thursdays after 5pm half-price pizza remains a staple because of customer pressure. Brunetti's used to be Borders. I don't know if people remember Borders, but for me and so many of my friends, the beanbags and the distracted staff meant that you could read books whenever you wanted. Most people didn't care if you were going to eventually pay for the book, as long as you weren't disrupting other people reading. They had a cafe in the bookshop. You could get a hot chocolate and fall into fantasy books for hours. I used to think of Borders as the place you couldn't take the books home. The place where you could read the books that Yarra Library and Rathdown Street hadn't gotten yet. 
It was a spot for the new releases in series. I suppose that played a part in why they went bankrupt. Moving towards Woolworth, you can either walk down the escalator or take the elevator, which is located past a grocer on your left, before you get to the bathroom. Woolworths was originally Safeway. It remained largely the same, the way big chain supermarkets do, except there's barely any staff in the community, where previously I'd see two to three people I knew working every time I went. And where the security used to roam around the hall of Ligon Court, now there's security stationed at the door of Woolworths. I don't know if the induction includes racism or if that's to the discretion of the individual security guards, but there's nothing like watching five people walk out right in front of you, only to be stopped and asked to open your bag. Personally, I tell them they're not checking my bag unless they run after those other people and check theirs. But as I grow older, I notice there's a special type of harassment reserved for young black people, that people in authority take advantage of children and teenagers that have been met with principal's offices whenever they advocated for themselves. When teachers were more upset and angry about being called racist than the racism itself. Young people are humiliated after being taught that the shame is much milder than the repercussions they'll face if they kick up a fuss. So really, to no surprise, when I saw the new cameras built into the self-checkout and I asked my family friend how long it's been there, and she said she didn't know. But the first time she used it, a staff member came up to her and said, Hey, look, you're being recorded with that sickly sweet smile we all know too well. I'll never age out of being black, but with age comes the knowledge that saying, if you're just doing your job, then why don't you check those other people's bags? Honestly, I'll show you my bag right after you get the manager and I speak to them. It means that the young people watching me might do the same, but also knowing that the cops might be called if they do. Walking along Drummond Street towards Elgin, you'll see an old massive building to the left of you. Carlton Police Station used to be there, and alhamdulillah, now it's not. We tried to find out if the building was for sale a few years ago. We were hoping we could advocate for it being turned into a youth space. Of course, after Quran Saris, a smoke ceremony and anything else to clear it out. Apparently it's privately owned, so... So any of you listening, if you're rich, you have some rich friends, and you want to put in a good word for us, we are open to philanthropy with no strings attached. Let us know. Before you cross Elgin Street towards Palmerston, stop and take a deep breath through your nose. Do you smell that? Imagine spending the whole day in your house in the middle of summer. The curtains down to the floor and a front door you can only open if you're being sent to the store. The sun sets and after praying you hear people downstairs. You take a step out of your house and close the door behind you as not to let the still warm air in. You see your friends at the park. You yell out to them that you're coming in five and to wait out. You ask her if you can go outside and have thrillers for a slushie and candy from the petrol station. She tells you you need to be back where she can see you from the window in less than 15 minutes. You run down the stairs, skipping the three last steps the whole way down until your friends hurry up. You're all relieved to be outside after hot homes that aren't permitted by DHHS to install air conditioning. You're breathing deep as you jaywalk across Elgin Street. The air is thick with the smell of eucalyptus trees, and you're hoping that the slushy machine is working because 15 minutes isn't enough to sneak to 7-Eleven. If you look in front of you, you'll see palm trees on Palmerston. Don't let the size fool you, they were brought in and put in the ground that big. Walking along Palmerston to your right, you'll see the new entrance of Carlton Primary School. In front of you is the undercover basketball courts, the outdoor bathrooms, and the massive field to the back. The inside is even better. The three floors are made up of a center for early childhood, massive meeting spaces, an office area for services, and plenty of room for learning. Basically, it's real flash now, which is a completely different story to how it was when I went there. It's not just the exterior that's changed. The school itself focuses on the well-being of the kids as well as their learning. It's not punitive anymore. And you might wonder how punitive a primary school could be. Trust me, very, but I'll leave that there. 
Something we had that these little ones will never know nothing about is the Sorghum Sisters. Pre-construction, Carlton Primary School had a massive industrial kitchen that used to be for the breakfast program until about like 2005 when it was discontinued. The kitchen wasn't used for a few years until a group of East African women started to use it to cook. Before long, they had started a catering company and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you can put in a lunch order with them. Forgotten with the chips and the big M's of the milk bar orders. We were living lavishly on bolognese, fresh veggies, and the best hummus and tzatziki, and za'ata bread still warm. They've moved to a space under one of the Kensington buildings since then, and their food is just as delicious as I remember. I also love the multi-purpose room. It was used for after-school program and homework help, where volunteers help primary to high school age youth with their homework. It was the best when you were partnered with one of your friend's older siblings, and they could tell you stories about your current teachers if you finished your homework quickly enough, that is. Like I said, this is the new entrance. If you make your way back towards the palm trees and turn into the path between the car park and grass, you'll see a brick building, a ramp leading into the school. When I was in early primary school, I'd run up the ramp to make it just in time for class. If I left the house when I heard the school bell, I could be in class within the minute. This went on until about grade five, six, when I was made responsible for two neighbor kids making it to school on time. It's bittersweet that Carlton Primary School is finally what we deserve, and the first thing we're told is that it's not only for us. That the entrance facing the estate makes people think it's for kids that live in the buildings. And that's true, Carlton Primary School isn't only for us. It never was only for us. It's always been open to other kids. It's just that their parents decided that they didn't want their kids going to a school with refugee African Muslim children. And I won't lie, it was great to not experience discrimination from your peers and to have a united front against faculty that overstepped. We dealt with enough every inter-school sports and athletics day. I went to high school with a few Asian kids who couldn't say hi to us in front of their parents on the estate, but at school would explain that their parents wanted better education for them, and that just wouldn't happen if they went to school with children whose parents didn't speak English. Apparently it was fine at an affluent public school where we wouldn't be so concentrated. There they could befriend us. There was also a few African parents who were willing to pay thousands of dollars in tuition at private Islamic or Catholic schools. Some of them so that their children would be able to learn about their faith. Others because they too internalized the belief that their kids wouldn't do well in schools where most of the kids were black. There's an element of truth to this belief. And it isn't the fact that there was newly arrived kids that needed more support, or most parents weren't able to help their children with English homework. Sometimes the teachers just didn't think we were smart enough and the low aspirations for black students was even more intense in high school. Thankfully for us, our parents' commitment to education kept many of us afloat. Sometimes that wasn't enough. If you're standing, please feel free to find a comfortable spot on the grass or concrete stage as I tell you about underground. Underground is what we named our youth drop-in space. Underground was the place you could go for anything. You could repair your bike, fix up your resume, make something to eat. Some of us even learned how to make a canoe. Some of us, I didn't. There was after-school programs four days a week, holiday excursions, and if you were in high school, that was your second home. It was a small space underneath the old entrance of Carlton Primary School, but we made it fit all of us. I wasn't 12 yet when I started attending programs. I was a tag-along, trailing after my older brother. I could stay because otherwise he'd have to look after me at home. The majority of the staff were youth workers who were from the community, residents of the same buildings we lived in. My favorite youth worker lived two floors above me. We had family camp every year. Imagine all your friends and their families going to a campsite for two to three days. High rope, low ropes, giant swing, bushwalk, skipping rope tournaments, girls versus boys soccer, and mother versus daughter basketball games. All types of fun bonding activities and all types of serious conversations. 
We had sessions for anything from drug and alcohol use and addiction to gender roles and expectations. Sometimes it was young people with their parents and sometimes we were separate so we could talk about the pressures, the concerns and environments we were in. Conversations were led by the community's wants and needs and I don't mean these consultations that ask a very specific set of questions with external facilitators that don't have enough context to even know what and how to ask it. I mean youth workers who collected what they'd been hearing, observing and experiencing all year round and took the time to come up with community-led responses. Leading up to the camp, each staff were compiling topics, talking to community members and finding guest facilitators where appropriate. Personally, there hasn't been anything that even comes close to the feeling of family camp. I'd share an experience and unexpectedly somebody younger than me would share a similar experience. Somebody older than me would explain why they thought it happened and before we knew it, we would ask one another how it felt. Somebody would dismiss an experience as not as that bad and somebody else would pull them up telling them some things are worse but nothing's not as bad. It was not only validating, it was fortifying. You couldn't tell me nothing after three days kicking it with my extended family. More than anything, family camp was to connect us all to each other and remind us that it's us versus the problem, that none of us are the problem, that we shouldn't scapegoat each other when we're criminalised by the media and targeted by the police. Most of the parents spoke two or more languages before English. The budget was next to nothing and the aim was to get as many families as possible to come. So the costs were agreed upon collectively and no one was turned away for lack of funds. Henna, and facilitation and translation were offered up by parents. My aunties fluent in Arabic, Somali and Compassion co-facilitated conversations so that our families couldn't converse across languages. A few parents who weren't fluent but knew bits and pieces figured it out. Somalis who spoke Arabic too, Oroma parents who grew up speaking Somali, Eritreans who could swap between Tigrinya and Arabic, and us young ones who, who were switching between English and our mother tongues. We made a lot out of a little. The reason family camp could be this in-depth was the staff. Their introduction to the community wasn't through a role and their commitment wasn't limited to one either. Every bit of development of them was an investment into us because they remain part of this community. It didn't end with their contracts. They also had more at stake and moved as such. I remember when parents would bring up concerns about drug users using the stairways to shoot up and Loki stealing our clothes from the laundry. The anger of seeing somebody else in your clothes is unparalleled. Confidently walking through your neighborhood in your clothes. But I remember staff talking with our parents about possible responses. How calling the police puts people in danger, so what else could we do? Community members landed on syringe disposals at the bottom of every stairs, signs reminding people to lock the laundry and drug and alcohol training for community members. Years later, I've seen experienced social workers hide in the fear of community members and market security and police as appropriate safety measures for just about everything safety related. Working in the not-for-profit for over five years, I know behind closed doors service providers assume that our community members aren't capable of understanding the complexity of addiction. In those moments, I'm like, who's going to tell them that Somalia was a socialist state with free primary education and universal healthcare before the Civil War due to a history of divisive colonization and the meddling of American imperialism? Like babes, we had three colonizers at the same time only 60 years ago. Some of my friends have parents older than our freedom. Our community understands complexity, we're living it, and the last thing we need is our parents being taught to criminalize drug addiction. During my childhood, the Y was responsible for delivering youth programs in Carlton underground holiday program, homework club, and family camps. Staff would joke that the Y was YMCA's forgotten child, that they were often left to their own devices. Drummer Street took over the tender from YMCA in my adolescence. 
For those of you who don't know what a tender is, look, I feel you. I only know because I became a youth worker down the track. Basically, Carlton's part of City of Melbourne, so they're responsible for services here. Also other things like parks and permits, etc. Our bordering councils, Yarra, so Fitzroy, Collingwood, Richmond, and Mooney Valley, so Flem, Askeville, and some other places with more money. Basically, other councils run new services as a branch of their services, so the staff are council staff. City of Melbourne, instead of having a team of, for youth services, has organisations applied to be the service providers in their area. Drummond Street applied, got it, and were made responsible for youth services in Carlton. Up until then, none of us had heard of Drummond Street services, and although we didn't particularly care about YMCA as a whole, we cared about the staff and we had no interest in changing that, so naturally we protested. Funnily, I didn't know what City of Melbourne was exactly, but I felt like they were meddling in our business. I didn't realise it was literally their business. For my young self, I didn't know what services changing meant. Drummond Street committed to keeping after school and holiday programs, but family camp was cut immediately. It was costly and they had no idea what it meant to Carlton. They didn't know kids from other neighbourhoods who had family in Carlton would stay over in the holidays just to come to family camp. I often wonder if the youth service provider was changed at that particular time to destabilise us. We were united, vocal and responding collectively to our needs. I don't think even Drummond Street could have known how Carlton would change over the next few years. We lost the underground space first. Carlton Primary School would be remodelled and early childhood would be where we were. They closed the parks next, which is wild, right? How do you close a park? During COVID, you can see how. Put massive fences around it, except they started construction. Not only the parks, but the whole surrounding area. There was nowhere to sit or play between Palmerston and the other side of Drummond, from Lagos Street to Rathdown. No grass area, no basketball court, even the milk bar was snatched up, which I have mixed feelings about. During the construction period, there was dust in our eyes every day because surprise, surprise, the middle of two high-rise buildings is a wind tunnel. But worse still, there was a proposal to continue Drummond Street right through 510 and what was then 140 Neal Street, now 478 Drummond Street. Obviously, the proposal was ridiculous and was shut down quick fast. The thought of cars going through the estate where the kids play and the adults meet is beyond me. Realistically, I think they knew people would most definitely throw things out of their windows at the passing cars if they put a road through our backyard. I wonder how much stupid and dangerous things we'd endure if we stayed quiet. What well, felt like forever, but was probably about two years until we got Neal Street Reserve, but the damage was done. The culture of summer nights at the park and the intergenerational games of 44 Home and Cops and Robbers was done. I actually haven't seen anyone play 44 Home since they cut down the 44 Home tree. You see the path that comes from the top of Lagoon Street through the grass area towards the futsal field and basketball court? You notice how on one side the grass is lush and the other it's barely holding itself together? Well that lush side is the city of Melbourne's property and the barely surviving is DHHS's. Do you see the tree closest to the 510 staircase? Not these new trees, an established one. Right next to her used to be an identical tree. The tree was there one morning and gone when we returned from school that afternoon. That was a 44 home tree. Every kid who lived in Carlton or spent a summer staying with their cousins or grandma knew when somebody yelled 44 home, that the last person to touch that tree was it. When we played cops and robbers, which I know is a problematic game, um, but also did so much in the way of establishing that none of us wanted to be cops. There was a table with benches on either side. You could sit and talk shit when you were caught and were waiting to be freed or waiting for the next round. There was always a phone on the table bumping something. And if we were lucky, somebody was able to bring down speakers. I don't know how these games would be played now. There's fewer places to hide. The hill that existed between the park and the primary school has been flattened. The fence is way too high to jump safely. 
you need a pass to enter the building now, so no climbing the stairs and running through the floors. And so many of the trees and the bushes are gone. I guess kids always find a way, but childhood games are taught intergenerationally, and the bond to some extent has been severed. Moving towards the basketball court and futsal field, I have to say they really did some things here. The basketball court was so cracked and uneven, and sometimes there was only one ring, and we never had a futsal field. Who would have thought? The amount of photos we took with the palm trees in the background stunting on other neighborhoods were messy for a minute there, but we got pulled out of our fantasy. People in colored sashes with whistles and score sheets came. There was a group on Sunday that played bike polo, which is exactly what it sounds like. For months, people we'd never seen in our lives told us that they had bookings for the court or field, that we too could make a booking if we wanted to use the space. Can you imagine? Someone directing you to Carlton Bars. It's across the street, about 100 meters away. You can't miss it. As if some of us couldn't see it from our living room windows. Thankfully, they eventually got rid of the booking system. I assume they got too many complaints. Apparently you need a full court for bicycle polo and we were only letting up half court. Following the path back, walking between the buildings, you'll notice a park. Several community members spoke out about building a park between the buildings, that the Shadow 510 casts wouldn't allow kids to get much needed sun and the wind between the building would make them sick, but they did what they wanted. The park near the school with the swings is closer to where our previous main park was. Something I find people think less about because we took it for granted was the L-shaped benches that used to be right under 510. There are benches there now facing the park, but there's an assumption that their seats are for parents or older siblings watching kids play. The previous benches always had elderly folk and aunties chit-chatting away. I didn't mention the elderly building right next to 510 earlier. Honestly, it's often an afterthought because the residents are so removed from us. On the one hand, I think it's great that they have benches right under their building for access and the elderly exercise park is mad cute, but we don't connect anymore. Growing up, elderly folk whose grown up children rarely visit could send us to the store for them. There was a process. They'd give you money and you'd buy what they asked for and you'd always get a receipt and count out the change when you were putting it in their hand. Often it was small things like sauce, a cool drink, noodles, maybe some onions. No one taught you what you had to do, but you watched kids older than you do it that way and as you grow older, you realize that community processes are created out of necessity. There are people more than willing to take advantage of elderly Italian women, and that the community standard doesn't allow that. It was also nice to see elderly folk across communities having their little bonding moments over feeding pigeons that they weren't meant to. I won't lie, I'm so glad those pigeons are gone. You'd get mobbed every time you bought bread. Not to get too sentimental, but there were these massive eucalyptus trees between the two buildings. There were benches side by side between them. It was a prime spot to hang. You could see everything that was happening, who was going where and doing what, but far enough away you could share secrets and not worry about anyone eavesdropping. Only catch was the trees hid you from your parents up above, so sometimes you'd hear your name being yelled out and you'd have to walk out from under the trees and wave up, showing that you were where you said you'd be. The building 478 Drummond Street used to be 140 Neal Street. The milk bar became a bookable community space under the building and there's now a Nigerian restaurant. The owners are so sweet and they always give my grandma free tea and the food's delicious. Same building, same spot. So you'd think it wouldn't make sense that it would be in a different school zone. That year when Carlton Primary School grade sixes applied for University High School, the students from 478 Drummond Street were denied entry. The same children whose older siblings and neighbors were students were denied entry on a technicality. Could be innocent enough, a system error, but that's harder to believe when Carlton Primary School's principal and parents of kids had to convince the school that it was the same building, so it had to still be in the zone. 
Not surprising with the school's history of pushing out BCE age African boys regardless of how they were doing academically because of the assumption that they eventually wouldn't score as high. The same building, the same bullshit. If you look at the bottom of the buildings, you can see cameras and lights. Notice how most of them face the pathway. I've seen more people than I can count eyes flicker to those lights as they walk through. I'll put it bluntly, there was a time where white people rarely walked between these two buildings. I would take Rathdown or Ligon and honestly I used to prefer that to the gawking that happened where people sometimes did walk through and were surprised to see us. People who looked unsure if they should turn around or power through. A few years before the cameras and floodlights were introduced, the passes and the intercoms came. It was in response to the community's concerns about safety, that people were coming into the neighbourhood to buy and that they were a risk to the residents. I can't tell you a single community meeting that I've attended where safety wasn't a concern. However, this time DHHS had a solution. Every exit was locked from the outside, including the main entrance. You could exit freely, but you needed a pass to come in. I remember visiting Collingwood when I was younger and making fun of the kids my age for living in a place where people were required to sign in, coming in and out of the building, if you didn't live there. We used to joke in Carlton about it being some prison shit the way that security sat at the bottom of the building. Children can be trash. Our passes were assigned by the Department of Housing, except they decided that there was a limit per household. So for example, my mom had a pass, but even though she was at work when I came from school, I had to wait until somebody let me into the building. During the busier parts of the day, people were coming in and out, which when you think about it, doesn't stop anybody who wants to enter the building from coming in. Or you could call a friend's house on the intercom and they can let you in. The real iffy thing about the past is when it's late and no one's entering or leaving the building. Nobody's home and it's too late to call your friend's house and you're stuck outside. No lie, the number of addicts I've seen break the security door when nobody answered the intercom is wild. Bless their hearts, the door wouldn't be fixed for weeks and we could move in and out freely. The thing is, if you lose your pass, you can go to the DHHS office at 480 and let them know what unit you live in and they can cancel your pass, which logically means that they have a system that tracks each and every pass and we've never had a conversation about that. Walking towards Princess Street, you can see cars parked on either side of Drummond Street. Right near 478, there's a no parking sign. It only became a no parking spot in the last few years. Now the police can be found parked there several times a week. It was great that the refurbishment of the units meant that air conditioning could finally be installed. The new layout of the units meant that there wasn't a door dividing the kitchen and living room, but it was a reasonable compromise for new carpets and a separate bath and shower. Walking towards 522 Drummond Street, you'll notice this flash aged care building to the right of you. Well, there were walk-ups there too. Along Drummond and Rathdown Street and across both were walk-ups. Walk-ups were about four floors high with only stairs. They had small laundry areas similar to the flats, and if you lived there, you knew which ones you can get access to the roof. If you've gotten to Rev Street, 522 Drummond Street is right in front of you. If you want to do a loop around the block, feel free to do so. As soon as I moved into 522, I knew it wasn't the same as the private apartment buildings around us. Hoya knocked on the plaster walls and joked about our new home being Ikea-like. All the pre-made assembled pieces slotted into each other. They didn't have the sturdiness 510 had, but it had a whole lot more space. When they decided to demolish the walk-ups and rebuild at first, residents thought it was promising. Everyone wanted the option of lifts and plenty of people needed it for access. People who lived in the walk-ups were offered public housing out in the suburbs or the high-rises nearby. We chose to move back into 510. Hoi was working at YMCA and we were at Carlton Primary School and Princess Hill Secondary. They said first priority was for people who lived in the walk-ups for over 10 years. Hoya asked why they needed to be first priority if they were rebuilding the walk-ups for us to move back into. They said in terms of room preferences. 
After everyone had been relocated, we learned about the mixed housing scheme. The premise being that if you mix people who had different incomes, it would improve everyone's standard of living. If that was the intention, and not for land developers to make a heap of money from inner city real estate, why didn't we get the same type of housing? What are the people who've been on the government housing waiting list for over 10 years? Shouldn't their standard of living be improved instead of privatizing government housing? One of my favorite parts of living in the walk-ups was this massive grass field we had between the buildings. Rarely anyone who didn't live in the walk-ups knew about it. Most days I'd go downstairs with my book and my duck and relax where my hoy could watch us from the kitchen window. Our apartment in 522 faced Rathdown Street, but our family friend that lived across from us had a balcony that faced the private apartments. From their balcony, you could see the private barbecue area reserved for the private residents in the very place that the grass field used to be. The moment I saw that, I thought about Neal Street Reserve and I had the overwhelming feeling it wasn't for us. That day I spent walking around and thinking about what actually is for us. And the only thing that I could land on confidently is us. We are for us. The privatizing of public housing isn't an issue limited to Carlton. You could see the rubbles of North Melbourne walk-ups on the 402 bus route. Flemington walk-ups are empty. I haven't seen Askeville in a long time, but I remember when they got a one-year notice that all their buildings would be demolished. People said they started with Kensington, but I don't remember how Kensington looked before. Often when I think about Carlton, I think from Palmerston to Princess, Ligon to Rathdown, but our extended Carlton community is on Nicholson and Elgin, and the walk-ups next to the Red Flats were privatised too. Walking down Rev Street, cross the street to Carlton Bars. This street is new, by the way. I lived on Rathdown Street, across the street from Carlton Bars. There was a lifeguard who lived in 140 that worked there, so it was easy to get permission to spend almost every day of summer at the pools. The drinking tap was located right next to the doors leading to the pools, so you could pretend you were going for a drink of water and sneak in without paying. The pools were filled with people, and every summer there was a pool party with a massive inflatable obstacle course and a slide, most of the time a barbecue too. All the local primary school kids played futsal in the stadium every Thursday afternoon. Where the staff offices are now used to be bleachers, where all the siblings and parents could come and watch, and below the bleachers were benches for subs. Not to brag, but Carlton Primary School won every year. We had an A team and a B team, and most years we played each other in the finals. Ramadan soccer happened in the same stadium. One month a year, every night after everyone comes back from Taraweeh, Ramadan evening prayers, all the young men in the neighborhood would go to Carlton bars. The same people who ran an underground holiday program family camp ran Ramadan soccer. It was originally for Carlton young men, but was quickly extended to surrounding neighborhoods. Our sleep schedules were strange because we were fasting all day. So often at night when we had energy, young people were outside hanging out in groups. You know how that goes. Groups of black kids out late at night, so somebody's calling the police. Ramadan soccer was about giving young people a safe place to go and be with each other. It extended to becoming a way to build deeper friendships across neighborhoods in response to some of the conflict. But you know how the not-for-profit goes. It's not surprising the police were allowed to come to Ramadan soccer the same way that they came to family camp. All the same shit about building deeper connections between the police and communities. Well, we've had cops at our youth programs, religious gatherings, camps, excursions for years. And what good has it done us? The only outcome I've seen is it divides us and increases surveillance. It makes young people decide not to attend programs. When you can't be in public spaces without policing, and then the police are invited into the spaces that were built in response to policing, where the hell are you supposed to go? Every Sunday night from 7pm was women's night. The window was covered up and all the Muslim women who were usually covered would be in active wear or bathers. We played soccer and basketball in the stadium with music bumping. We'd swim in the pool, but the sauna and the hot tub were reserved strictly for adults. 
Loki, you could experience a little taste of the sauna if you pretended you'd only gone in there to ask your mom for money. Maybe dip half a foot in the hot tub. After Carlton Bars got their upgrade, all of that was done. Here we thought we were getting a new and improved center. Jokes on us. So many people advocated for Ramadan soccer, even some of the old YMCA staff. But in the end, it was only on weekends and didn't run past 9.30 p.m. Since the initial refusal, some good things have happened. Friday Night Jam, a soccer program run by Drummer Street Services, happens every Friday. We had the Carlton Pool Party last year, and there's been some good program by some enthusiastic staff. However, it's not lost on me that the most yeses come around tender time or when it's time to apply for a grant. I guess it helps applications to show that you're engaging local community. But it is what it is. We try our best to get ours. If you go up Princess Street towards Ligon, cross the street and walk towards the city until you get to Vic Roads, you should be on Lighton Street. At the end of Lighton Street, there's one more public housing building. Similar to 522, it was built after the privatizing of the walk-ups. Some people said there used to be more walk-ups in this area, but I don't remember. I want to end our journey by thanking you for coming along with me down memory lane. I want to thank all my Carlton family, who protected and raised me, and to Wurundjeri people whose land my community has found refuge in, was well, much refuge as you can have in a colony. Like I said when I began, I can't fully do justice to the complexity of our community's shared history, but here's a little glimpse of the little I can say. Everything we made ours was taken. We were told it was made better. The thing about an area becoming more aesthetically pleasing is that it's difficult to enjoy when you're seen as a hindrance to the aesthetic and policed as such. But at least we got to stay. Not everyone was afforded the same. But when you settle on at least, all that will be left is to fade. Six Walks has been commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art as part of the exhibition Who's Afraid of Public Space? For more information about the exhibition and to listen to other walks in this series, please visit ACCA's website, acca.melbourne. ACCA acknowledges the support of Creative Victoria in the development of the Six Walks series.